0: the weekly pseudo-accompanied run. Mr. Maverick, but you can call me Mav, and I am once again here with my co-hosts, Wayne and Hannah and Monica. How's it going, guys? Hey, Mav. (laughs) I'm afraid of that laugh. (laughs) That was scary. I don't trust that.
1: (laughs) What do you think I'm going to do?
0: I don't know. And and that scares me.
1: But it'd come for you to know I was laughing because you asked me how it was going. I looked up at my paper for PCA. I saw that I'd named the file PCA 2021. And I thought, yeah, that's how I'm doing.
0: OK. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just, I, I was like, oh, I'm going to be murdered on air. <laughs> <laughs> so for, well, hold on. If I get murdered on air, I edit the show like no one would know like anybody else could be murdered on air but like i have to be alive <laughs> i
1: mean we are so far away from each other i would then, be the like, most would be the alibi
0: yeah, she, yeah yeah yeah. <laughs> so, but,
2: you
1: maybe, now- yeah be worried about the disembodied voice who's speaking <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: yes yeah, stephanie my wife is joining us hey steph welcome back to the show Last last time you were on was our was the box office draft.
3: Oh, yeah, it has
0: been a while. So this is a show we haven't done in a couple of years. In 2019, Hannah and Katya had the idea of doing a PCA preview show because that year the four of us were all going to be at PCA, Hannah, Katya. Wayne and myself were all going. And I guess at Duke, you guys do a thing that you call Works in Progress or something like
1: that? Yeah. So, like the graduate students of the English department, which the last I'm no longer a part of, would do a couple of Works in Progress events throughout the academic year. And it was an opportunity for grad students who are working on a dissertation chapter or a conference paper. To present before the high stakes thing and from a room of their peers and get some feedback. So mm-hmm. we took this idea and we deformalized it for this show where we procrastinated in writing our papers in 2019 and <laughs> did it live on the air, basically, from my <laughs> re- recollection, or at least that's what I did.
0: Yeah, I had a lot of it written actually. I had strong notes and parts of it written. And really was looking for feedback on how it was going. This time I have far less of it written. And so, I guess this show is going to be sort of a workshop for us. I, yeah.
4: So I, I think for the listener, we probably should give them a, a refresher on what PCA is and when it is and all that stuff. So, yeah. I talk so about it a lot, but this is we like, do. Like, like a comic book. Everyone is somebody's first. Might be some, <laughs> this may be somebody's first episode. And if so, I'm so sorry. Okay.
0: PCA is the Pop Culture Association's national conference, really an international conference every year we have a bunch of papers on pop culture subjects we've got panels on comics we've got panels on plays we've got plays on panels on Television, sometimes very specific kinds of television. Like there might be reality TV. There's a beer group that talks about just different kinds of beer. Stephen King. Yeah. And it, music. it's music. There's a great, lots of things that are pop culture. forget
1: about games. That, games I mean, that's what. Yeah. 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 yeah,
0: yeah so you Both you and Cot, you did games
4: three years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's
0: my favorite conference, actually. Every academic conference I've ever been to. PCA, which I try to go to every year, is my absolute favorite. And a lot of our guests that we've had on the show are people that I've met through PCA. Yeah, it been phenomenal for networking. Nicole Frame, who was on the show last week, talk about Bridgerton, is vice president of PCA and chair of the comics. Group. So that's how I know her. And Joe Dorowski, that's how I met him. So it's really good for that sort of thing. And so several of us are going again this year. I'm going. I go every year. Wayne, you went last year um, again. So... You're going this year as well. Hannah is returning. And then Monica, you're going for the first time. And Stephanie, who is joining us as a guest, you're going for the first time.
4: And by going <laughs> we mean doing it from yeah. our houses. Yeah. Virtually speaking. Yes. Which, which is
1: why I'm going. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah.
4: It, it moves around city to city. Yes, it's a different place every year. In pre-COVID years. And this year it was originally scheduled for Seattle. And then they mm-hmm. decided to go virtual again.
0: Right. Because they weren't sure where the pandemic was going to be. Yeah. And then they were like, all right. We're going to do it online, which was great because it meant like Hannah, you said you wouldn't have done it. I wouldn't nope. have been able to do it yeah. this year. I mean,
1: I think it's really important to note that for a variety of reasons, academic conferences are really great, but they're also very exclusionary because travel costs money. Registering mm-hmm. for the conference costs money. Becoming a member of the association so you can apply it to some conferences costs money. Mm-hmm. And then if you are an independent scholar, which I guess is technically what I am now, even though like I still have a job at a university. It's not part of your job, so it's also, like, a different thing.
0: Mm-hmm. But, but I, a lot of good academic work gets done. This show owes itself in many ways to PCA, you know, that's where a lot of the ideas from how this show works come from and we thought it'd be nice to sort of do a, a, a workshop for on the air because cause frankly we need it but also there's a little behind the scenes for how these papers come to be and also I think it's going to be really interesting because again Monica and Stephanie now they've both done academic conferences before Monica did one like two weeks ago <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so like it's not like it's, it's
5: the drug I can't quit Mav. <laughs>
0: <laughs> right so it's, not like, so it's not like you're like you're Going completely cold though. But Steph, this is your first academic pop culture conference, period, right? Oh, like, yeah. You've seen, you've gone to them and watched me from the audience. Yes, but like, yeah, I went to LA. Uh-huh. And so I guess this is us, you know, sort of doing some planning, some planning of ideas. And what's going to be odd is all five of our papers are in varying states of completeness, going from basically nothing to, you know, teacher's pet nerds like
4: Lane, who. Uh, yeah, you, yeah, this, <laughs> this, this, this is an incredibly rare occasion. <laughs> most things I missed her last minute. So. Yeah, I guess more than anything else, just wanted to talk about our process of how we do this, what our topics are and, and that sort of thing. The so last year my presentation was on the Tringill and Jamie McKelvey, Matt Wilson image series, The Wicked and the Divine, which and I have. By the found-
0: way, that is online, so. If we don't talk about our YouTube channel much anymore because I'm, I haven't been, I've been busy with dissertation stuff and a couple of publications. And so I haven't done video versions of one of our episodes at press time in quite some time. But last year, Wayne and my talks in their entirety are both up on the Vox podcast YouTube channel so I will link to those in the show notes.
4: Yeah, so you watch those if you want to get a sense of what this thing actually is, how it looks when we're doing it. Yeah, I I guess a little bit of that our presentations are for a lot of them they people just read papers that are about 15 minutes long, usually in a panel with two or three other presenters mm-hmm. and then with questions at the end. So anyway, I I did this last year, Wiccan Divine. It's just, it, As I've probably said on the show different times, it's one of my favorite series of the last 20, 30 years. It's a series about uh, mythology and superpowers and rock and roll, and if you were listing things Wayne are interested in, those are easily in the top five. It's a really good mix of those things, so it just it speaks to me a lot, and I found it incredibly rich, so much so that I'm working on big, big quotations around the phrase, a book on WiccGiv, as Mav sees me one day I'm writing a dissertation for fun and you're doing it outside of the auspices of a university or (laughs) advisors or anything, which is a problem. I I, I admit that.
0: It's a problem. I mean, I I, I teased you about it because I'm a mean person, but realistically...
4: I'm not sure if you, what you're doing is better or worse.
2: At some point,
4: I'm going to ask people whose opinion I trust and, and people in, in the industry, you know, to take a look at it. I, I don't know what I'm going to do with it yet in terms of publication. I'm writing it as a way to keep my mind active. And I, I'm one of those weird people who enjoys homework and, and mm-hmm. doing this sort of thing. And so it, it combines a lot of my interest. I, so it, I'm finding it just a very rich vein for sort the of type of things I like to read about and, and read.
0: To be fair, the whole doing academic research for fun is how Monica and I both became academics, right? So like that's, you know, yeah. <laughs> it's not like. A, you
4: know. Right, so, so that, that's what I've been working on for I don't know, a year now, whatever, off and on. And I have a lot of stuff done, but there's lots of little pockets of it. So last fall, there was a very specific part that I was working on around the time the, the call for papers went out from, uh, call for presentations went out from PCAs. And yeah, I wasn't quite sure. At that time, it was still scheduled for Seattle. Yeah, am I going to do this? And then to conversation with Nicole, we found out, it was probably going to virtual. So I said, well, yeah, let's." I'm working on all this stuff. Surely I can find something here that I can write about. And I found a paper that just was a key. There were some ideas, some very specific ideas that I was thinking about with a couple of the characters. And I found a paper that just opened up a wide doorway of research right at that time. I thought, well, that's going to be something in my book. That's what I'm doing my PCA conference on. <laughs> and in terms of connections, our episode two or three weeks ago, whenever it was, on crowds and that sort of thing is a part of my, my paper. Mm-hmm. So I, I guess talk about process a little bit. Uh, a lot of people in, in, and I understand this, you know, it's an academic conference. People get up and read papers. I kind of believe in comics anyway. Imagery is important. I mean, we're talking about things that have images and I, I find it incredibly difficult to talk about comics <laughs> without showing the images. Some of that is Which also... Is why our
0: audio podcast is great. You know? Yeah,
4: right, <laughs> yeah. And I've you know, we sat in on some papers in the comics area, but some of the other... other... Other things I sat in on had more people just getting up and reading papers. And, you know, even if it's a topic you're interested in, that can be really kind of dull. So I try to spice it up with some images along the way (laughs) to, to highlight what I'm talking about. I also see that as, and I got this from Scott McCloud. I saw him at CMU a lot of years mm-hmm. ago. And he did a presentation on Understanding Comics. And in Understanding Comics he draws himself as an avatar and he talks about comics and he shows images to show what he's talking about. And when I saw him live, he had a slideshow behind him and it was a living example of reading Understanding Comics. Like, mm-hmm. oh, well, that's how you teach this. You say these things, you're there physically, but you have the images. That interplay of text and image live I think resonates with the way comics should be taught. That's just yeah, sorry if I'm rambling on too much about the <laughs> so I, I, my process, and this comes from my lack of academic background, I guess. I don't sit down and write a paper. I approach putting this presentation together the same way I approach writing a comic. I have my ideas. I kind of make an outline. I start searching for images and I pull them into a keynote thing and I start arranging them in a narrative order, what seems to make sense to me narratively, making notes as I go. Hmm. And then once I kind of get a narrative flow in my notes, I then go back and write my narration for each slide. And when I'm done with that's my paper. So So it's essentially I'm putting together panels of a comic with dialogue and narration, and then stringing them together to create a narrative. And so that's my approach, and I realize so much that comes from the way I think about comics, and the way I make comics, has mm-hmm. translated into the way I make these presentations. So Anyway, the title of my, my presentation this year is The Most Ruthless of Tyrants, Ecstatic Joy and Mob Mentality and the Wicked and the Divine. And it's that idea we talked about on the, the Cloud Show. The, the gods in which if, they're also like modern rock stars, so among their powers they have the power to perform with when I say that in this context, hear it with a capital P. It's not something that can be recorded. You can't buy a CD of it. It doesn't transmit electronically. It's a purely live experience. You go see one of the gods perform, you have this crowd experience. It's an experience of the divine. You are swept up in their power for the duration of their performance. And it's almost impossible to describe that to anyone who hasn't been there. It's not music per se, although the, certainly the iconography of music performance is there. As an extension of that, there are a couple of gods in particular who Dionysus is able, part of his power, part of his performance is the ability to create sort of a group mind. It's the whole, you go to a rave and you do a lot of ecstasy and you kind of blend in with the crowd and everything is happy and joyous and you lose your sense of identity within that crowd. Woden is someone who uses that in a more manipulative kind of way. It's more of a mind control. He takes your individual will away from you. So there are two poles on this same type of, of thing. I wanted to play with that. The essay I found that really opened this up is called Wotan, uh, written by Carl Jung and published in 1935, uh, partially in response to the rise of Hitler and and the Nazi party. And he proposed the idea of Wotan, the god, as being an archetype of a cultural archetype, an archetype of war. Most of his archetypes dealt with individuals and individuation and becoming, finding out who your true self is. Where he kind of saw Wotan as this socio- a logical archetype and an archetype of war and frenzy that the people of Germany at that time got sucked into. He was using that as a metaphor in an attempt to describe, explain how many people get wrapped up in in such a thing. This was in 1935, before we knew all the true horrors of what was going on. And he compared Wotan to Dionysus. And that was the point in the essays where I went, what? (laughs) On the surface, those two don't seem to be very similar. But he refers to both of them as gods of frenzy, and Dionysus as god of wine. Your drunkenness can make you feel really good up until the point you get angry and belligerent. And any of us who spend time around drunk people can see how fine a line that can be.
0: Dionysus also being from different pantheon,
4: God, uh, yeah, right, very, yeah. which
0: is the concept of wickedness, and-
4: exactly. So, but that was kind of the point where I went, "Oh, Kieran Gillen had to have read this essay." I, you know, I I don't know that for sure, but there were so many pieces in it. In that essay, he talked about, he uses uh, German words and, forgive me my German friends for my horrible pronunciation, a phrase of Ergriffenheit, which is the process of being possessed by a god and there is the Ergriefer, who would be the god who possesses, and the Ergriffener, who is the person being possessed. Once again, core concept of wicked and divine. So if I ever talk to Karen Gill, I'm like dude, you read this essay by Jung because this just seems too specific for you not to have. So those are kind of the things that set me on my path with it. I and I as Matt said, I am mostly done. I want to do some editing and tightening it up because I'm right on the verge of that fifteen minute time limit. But it which is unusual for me, but I'm not teaching anything. I'm not doing a lot of other academic work right now. so, so this is my fun time. <laughs> <laughs> But it led me down the path of some of the stuff we talked about in the the episode about uh, crowds or whatever. I started reading stuff on mob mentality and, and herd mentality and digging back into Jung's individuation and some of those balances and performance studies my I, my tendency with a lot of stuff I I described this to Mav recently in a conversation where you my academic process isn't so much here's my thesis here here's my evidence here's my conclusion I'm more like that guy at the corkboard with all the red thread <laughs> <laughs> I I you know what I find fascinating is finding the connections among all this stuff and that's one of the things I'm I'm really motivated by with the wiki stuff and that's Sort of, my presentation ends up being a lot like that as well. Like, well, here, performance study says, and that leads me to individuation, which leads me to a concept I didn't know existed, which is de individuation, which leads me to Nietzsche, which leads me to Jung, which leads me back to Wickediv, you know, and just mm-hmm. kind of the way my brain works. So then I take all those elements and attempt to bring them together in something resembling a uh, rational narrative. <laughs> <laughs> We'll see how successful that is. <laughs> I, know, about so I, yeah, so it. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of where that's my process and kind of where I am with it. I you know, I'm certainly open to insights or thoughts or suggestions based on that bizarre rant I just gave. <laughs>
1: Can I, I want to ask you a question, but I want to preface it by saying I actually wouldn't ask you this if we didn't know each other and if we were at a conference because it's yes. kind of a jerk move. Because like I, I haven't read Wicked and Divine, which mm. I know I should. But so, like, they're, like, musical performers and, like, they gain, like, an enthusiastic crowd, which is, like, brings back, like, the crowd mentality stuff you were talking about, right? Like, if I understand that correctly. Yeah. I just want to tell you about a quote from Freud because I I want to know if it, like, resonates or not because it resonated with me, like, in my head. And now you can see why I would never ask this at a conference. (laughs) Conference etiquette means... You don't ask someone, "Hey, you talked about this thing. Have you read this thing?" But I, I think that <laughs> people
4: maybe do this it is- all the time, and it's awful. Right. You should never do yeah. this. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but I see that. And certainly, in this format, yes, because yes. it's another red yeah. thread to tie into this. So, so maybe this is helpful. Here's the
1: quote: "We have only to think of the troop of women and girls, all of them in love, with an enthusiastically similar way, who crowd around a singer or pianist after his performance. It would certainly be easy for each of them to be jealous of the rest, but in the face of their numbers and the the consequent impossibility of their reaching the aim of their love. They renounce it, and instead of pulling out one another's hair, they act as a united group, do homage to the hero of the occasion with their common actions, and would probably be glad to have a share of his flowing locks. Just, you know, thinking, mm-hmm. I, like, I'm wondering, like, how the crowd, like, reacts in Wicked and Divine, I guess, and like, I, yeah. does that Freud quote, like, resonate with you at all? Or is,
4: I, yeah, it so- does. That, no, and, and thanks Hannah, that's not a quote I've seen, I'm gonna ask you to send that to me, or email it to me, or something, because if, oh, I'll do right. right now. If, if not for if not for this presentation, it's something I can certainly you work into the the other projects I'm working on. No, I, I, that absolutely resonates. I mean, a big part of this is because it's not recorded. Like you know, here we buy an album by I'm going to use my obvious example, you know, Bowie, and you listen to the album, you listen to it over and over again, and you may or not ever see him live. In the narrative. It is so specifically a live experience. Mm-hmm. You know, this is taking place in London, and the gods of Wicked are giving. "Quote unquote concert," but you know, if you live in Kansas, you probably haven't experienced it. So it's localized. And in the the book, they really don't talk about the history of in the narrative. What give is this is a recurrent this the gods return every ninety years and have been doing it for six thousand years. So it's part of their history. It's written into history, but there's a tremendous amount of mystery around it. A lot of it is just turned into myth and story and legend. The recurrence of the nineteen twenties is the first one they actually have any video footage of, but it's nineteen. 19- 20s movie footage, so it's silent and it's black and white and it's shaky and whatever. 2014 is the first time that there is mass recorded ability, or whatever, and they just don't show up. You, like you can take a picture of one of the gods, but their performance is not recorded at all. So it's specifically live, but the people who experience it, there is just this that proud fandom. I mean, people just fall in love with them, and it is it's the way we treat our music idols or sports idols or movie stars or whatever that that need to be in their presence. To be seen with them, uh, to be seen by them, is a big part of this. That that people want the memorabilia, and and they're all like not releasing albums, but throughout the narrative, you see people posting, people are wearing the makeup and t-shirts and whatever. So it's this full-on fan experience. But but yeah, if if I'm hearing that quote correctly, that that need to be in the presence of the person performing and kind of losing personal identity while that's Mm -hmm. in place certainly is a part of this.
1: Yeah, totally. And I, if I remember the Freud correctly, and I don't know why that quote of all the quotes stuck with me over the years, because it's been like six since I've read the book. But like, I think he's like also drawing on Le Bon, which I, I feel like.
4: Yeah. would you mentioned about the, Yeah. Yeah. And that's, I, Le Bon is something that, I, just given the 15 minutes in this, uh, while yeah. I talk about de-individuation, his name doesn't come up because I don't have time for it, but it's something that when I get to this section of the, the larger project, it's definitely something I, I need to read more of and work into it.
1: Yeah, totally. There's only so much you can do in 15 minutes, which
4: I think that's one of the things I've run into each time is I feel like by the time I give the introduction of what it is I want to talk about, I'm halfway through my presentation and now mm-hmm. I have seven minutes to talk about what I want to talk about. You know, like my, my first three slides this year are the exact same three slides I started with last year because this introduces what Div is. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> yeah. It's like tricky about conferences. We are calling this episode of the show sort of works work in progress for our conferences, but, but conferences themselves are sort of works in progress <laughs> (laughs) You are paper, right? Like you are working on some greater project, and this is sort of a you know testing, like a dry run of your idea in a lot yeah. of ways, but like that 15 That's minutes goes
4: fast. It goes really real, fast. It goes real fast. I, I approach this kind of like I do teaching, which is I'm talking about this stuff and here's the images, but the rhythm is very different. Like we have 15 minutes to get in so there's no room for the questions from the audience or me to stop on one slide and belabor the point or go off on a side anecdote, you know, or whatever. Like, no, here's this here. I have to give the next piece of information right now. Mm-hmm. Kind
3: I
5: would of say, the, if okay. I were to label my t- toxic trait, it's that very few of these talks actually ever become the publications or papers that they yeah. meant to be for me because right. it's, like, it's a lot of work to put these together and mm-hmm to there is a sense in which like you do kind of write it like it's a, a much smaller article and, mm-hmm. and then there's a part of your brain where you're like well that's done i did that research i don't <laughs> want to sit yeah. you know like i don't want to sit and continue to work on something that i've already made mm-hmm. conclusions about when i could be learning or researching the new next thing and and so i think that is why there. You do see things all over the gambit, but like there is a lot of like, I'm definitely a fast talker. I'm mm-hmm. we're going to
2: yeah. we're going to yep. do this once Same. and
5: once only yep. Um, yep. and we're going to squeeze in eight thousand words worth of article into 15 yep. minutes. And I wouldn't recommend it for sanity, <laughs> for workload, for understand. But but there is also this like when you're at a conference, knowing like context is really important before you ever get to the conclusions. Otherwise, people won't be following along with your conclusions. Can feel really hard to balance.
4: Mm-hmm. My my script, and I call it a script because it, I don't think of it. I mean, it's a paper, I guess, but my script is eight pages. But mm-hmm. these are I have those numbered by slide, so it's not written really in paragraph form. Right. It's like this is the narration for slide number one. This is the narration for slide number two and some of them are very short pieces of narration because there's a story beat here that I need. Here's this image I want to show you, a story beat, but it's this long, and some of them are going to be on screen for a while as I yabber. And I, I find the, the presentation of have not just at PCAC, but any conference I've gone to, the ones that I find the least interesting are where someone just stands there and reads their paper. Mm-hmm. Thanks, um, Wayne. Yeah. <laughs> 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 you had slides.
1: No, I did not.
4: You didn't? I
2: don't even remember. Not. I thought you did.
1: I, nope. I'm of the opinion that well, I think that like slides are helpful depending on like what you're talking about. Will I make slides for my presentation? Yeah, no, it depends on how much time I have left. Because <laughs> but like I always I, I, mean, I totally I totally respect your position and yeah. like you're right. Like it's really hard to like if you have not read a comic and someone's talking about like the illustration specifically, like shadowing and color, like it's very hard as an audience member mm-hmm. to visualize that. But also technology definitely fails and like I feel yeah. like as much as one can maybe Mm -hmm. like try and write your paper and i actually i i have now referred to my paper as a talk to remind myself to write like human like (laughs) try and write your talk as much as you can so that it's legible with or without the slides because like slides do fail in fact it happened on my (laughs) panel last time and the person whose slides failed yeah Yeah. and the person whose slides failed did an amazing job of like recovering but like I, you, you know, there's also that, and yeah. it is, and making pretty slides is a time suck. And I know that. Well, I know that. Like you know, these just things just take time, and like the more time you can put into it, the better yeah. it is. But
4: I, I say some of that. Next. Yeah, I say some of that out of just my own personal learning style as well. I am such a visual thinker and visual learner that I you know, like. I don't do books on tape because they turn into Charlie Brown adults in my head, and that's what <laughs> happens when I listen to lectures. I just I <laughs> find you know I just it turns into white noise about Mm in, and that's and that's always been true and they say and that's me and it's also the way like i said earlier the way i think about composing this stuff is the way i think about writing a comic it's all the text and images are almost inseparable for me
1: well you know you bringing that up wayne like i think it's also important to emphasize when we can it's good to like think about how we can make our talks more accessible Mm -hmm. like i I always like make an accessibility copy in person to like hand out. I plan on making like a, a Google Doc accessibility copy. I can just send a link out to in the chat this time around because it is really hard to pay attention for fifteen whole minutes to someone else mm-hmm. talk. Like that's just like that's just how yeah. the brain works. That's not that's everybody pretty much. Like I am a bad academic because I don't know what happens in an hour long talk if someone doesn't pass out the notes. I also don't know how anyone else does. Um, never have been able to master that skill. Sorry everyone I'm <laughs> this years later
0: years but- later on our two hour long talk show yes
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this, i mean this is a conversation right yeah. like i can I, I applaud you listeners for uh, listening to us but that you know it, it's more than just like someone lecturing but, yeah so so You're anyway right. so this is my first Conference in two years that isn't about educational technology. So I finished my PhD. I, I went. My last conference was actually about Thomas Hardy and Darwinian sympathy in March 2020. I was in New Orleans. My undergrad institution hosted it. I got to see many of my undergrad professors and catch up with some people I knew in undergrad and meet some new people. And then everyone was like, "So COVID's in the United States?" And I was like, "Oh no!" Um, defended my dissertation online. Got a job that's not on the tenure track. And then I just was like, all right, I'm done. And then I went and saw a little movie called The Eternals in November of 2021. (laughs) And it made me think things again. Not that I stopped thinking, but it it made me think about Darwin. And I brought it up on this show like as Matt was like alright let's get to the end of this I was like but wait let me talk about Darwin and and uh, TK who was our guest from there was an idea podcast which is great was like oh this is really interesting let me encourage you so PCA was mm-hmm. virtual and uh, and as I said like you know accessibility can be a problem <laughs> also like, for the nice listeners
0: well, hmm? TK for the listeners TK will also be at the conference next PCA I'm doing my best to essentially just make the entire conference just our show so oh.
1: He's on my yeah. panel so yeah like the two eternals papers are on the same panel is mm-hmm. what i'm trying to say yeah so like i found out the conference was virtual and which made it more accessible to <laughs> me and i was like well i guess i could try this i mean <laughs> what are the consequences of this going bad really i mean hey, seriously nobody. it's not like i'm not gonna get a job it, you're it's, also it's,
2: good at this <laughs> You're, you're <gasps> yourself short.
1: well let's, let me tell you what i did and then you can be like maybe not hannah okay So, my paper is titled The Struggle for Sympathy, How Eternals Reformulates Evolutionary Theory, which is not an ambitious topic at all. So, so here's my first paragraph. Within the first 10 minutes of Chloe Zhao's 2021 film, Eternals, the camera lingers on a large statue of Victorian naturalist Charles Darwin. This is not merely a clever allusion to the evolutionary theorist, but a signal to viewers that the film will incorporate Darwinian thought into the action of the film. Specifically, Eternals appears to be inspired by Darwin's later work, which emphasized that instinctive emotions such as sympathy were not only key to survival but to the development of local and global communities. Using the relationships between the Eternals team, the film repackages Victorian natural science for a contemporary audience. In doing so, Eternals offers viewers an ethical theory of relationality and critiques theories of scarcity and domination often tied to pre- and post-Darwin like, writings. In essence, what this paper is about is how Narratives from natural science have become prevalent in our popular culture. The stories that have been told to explain the origin of life then have naturalized how we both recognize life and define it as valuable. So I'm not at all narrowing my scope whatsoever. So I go in and attempt to boil down a bunch of Darwin explanations into um, pulling my old trick, which is that uh, Darwin, like Eternals, takes place in a post Malthusian world comparing Thanos to Malthus. For those of you who do not know who Malthus is, He's basically a Marvel supervillain, but an 18th century economist. He was like. <laughs> <laughs> he was like seriously though, he was like, the consequences of population growth are going to create a bad world. So yeah, scarcity. So Darwin like read Malthus and was like, well this is happening so you know the question of life is certainly at the heart of darwin's scientific work and if you watch Eternals, and i try to like explain a little bit but let's face it you can't really explain that film without eating up all your time so like i just you know feel like yeah eternals life people in
0: the room no people in the audience will have seen this, this- i,
1: I- I feel like you, A, will have seen it if you're at a, in the comics area of PCA and also the two, like, Eternals papers are on this panel. So I feel like mm-hmm. this is the moment. So, <laughs> so anyways, as I was thinking through this, I was like, oh... Social, so like, how much like detail do I need to go into to talk about social Darwinism? Because that's clearly like some of the threads of theory that Eternals is picking up on. And then I remembered Foucault. Foucault can summarize this for me. So I, you know, thought about like biopolitics, but I don't use that word because it's too hard to explain in the moment. But he, he thinks about how like evolution like made its way into like all relations in the 19th century, including like colonization, war. And it's funny because all the things he lists are the things that the Eternals film tackles, although I can't do all of them in this paper. but this you know biological turn in Foucault's mind made light, like had the end goal of making life in general healthier and pure <coughs> eugenics, which is the eternals film so, bad.
0: Eugenics are bad.
1: Yeah, eugenics, yes, <laughs> Eugenics is bad. So, like, the Celestials, like, is basically being aligned with Eugenics and their mission. I also realized that, like, the, you know, this concept related to Eugenics that Foucault, like, theorizes is like, what must live and what must die is literally embodied in the Celestial Orishim, because he's, like, literally a judge of who he will let live and who he will let die. So, there, yeah, so, so, yes, this is what I, I just found all these parallels, and I attempted to write them into a coherent thing. So, we, you know, we see, like, the we realize the Eternals throughout the film, for those of you who have not watched, are, like, constantly involved with the Deviants. They're reenacting, like, different moments of, like, what they, you know, call is, like, the natural order. Like, Bastos even says that, like, using harmful technology at one point is part of their evolutionary process. So it's like once again embedding this thinking about evolution into like everything they do. But there's another strand of Darwinist theory that we need to like think about to fully understand what's going on in the internals and in Darwin, which is Darwin wasn't just like war and die and the strong live and the weak perish. He actually like wrote a lot about mutual aid and coevolution and sympathy. So for the majority of my paper, I talk about how this like way of sympathy is a way of th- like thinking about like the film like picks up on like this Darwinian thought of sympathy, this idea of like protecting what's precious to you as a way of survival, as a way of like thinking outside of this, like, you know, on the one hand, like earlier thoughts of Thanos of like scarcity, eliminating population and the eternals and celestial thought of the obsession of potential life and making life healthier and purer. So, you know, I will spare you all the examples, but, you know, like, even things like at the very end of the film where Icarus is confronted with Cersei and his eyes literally, like, glow as if he's going to shoot his laser beams at her and he can't do it because he loves her. Like, the film is making it impossible. Like, he's not defeated by strength. He's defeated by his own, which sounds a little bit trite, but it is something that, like, superhero films have not done and is extremely interesting. So, So that is what I'm saying. And then I get philosophical at the very end because about the film and how it teaches us how to think. But mm. there we are. So Josh said it wasn't terrible, but. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that was, that's, well, you haven't given it all to us, but, but you're doing actual literary criticism, which is when we're talking about film criticism and literary criticism. When we say it they, academically, we mean something a little different than I think what most people mean when they do it in popular media, which is this movie sucked or this movie was good, thumbs up, thumbs down. That's like it. So I think it's interesting. I, I, I mean, I'll reserve total judgment till I hear it. And- <laughs> actual analysis <laughs> yeah. but, I, but like i like where you're apparently i'm alone
1: <laughs> I, I i heard i'll reserve judgment and then nothing which uh,
0: yeah no, I, said, I'm, I, I mean i don't know i said i don't know what it's going to say until i hear the entire thing but from the concept of what you're doing i like the idea of it so, i mean i you made me want to actually which is something think.
5: for me as the the X-Men fan. I find this super interesting because the X-Men is full of discussions about the idea of evolution, right? So this feels like a new take on an old discussion in a way that I think is going to resonate with people a little bit differently because I feel like the Eternals movies were aimed at a different audience than the X-Men
1: movies. I think that's fair to say.
5: I think it's fair to say that the Eternals movie was aimed at a different audience than most superhero movies. Yeah. At least a little bit. So the idea of not having the same conversation around a media that inherently sort of needs to stay the same to continue to create like fan identification is a very interesting concept to me because there is this idea of can you have a new conversation when people can't get older and they have to have same fights in order for them to remain that concept of the superhero that you think they are so yeah i'm intrigued i'm i'd come to your talk even if i didn't know you
0: (laughs) academic conferences are weird because they're super important but most people never get to hear them right so it's Mm -hmm. a lot of work that just kind of goes into a a very insular bubble of, you know, you say, if I didn't know you, but like a lot of us mostly know each other. <laughs> I mean, yeah. a, it, it is a, It is a weird, that's why I love the show so much is, you know, we get to present stuff to people <laughs> we don't know and hear from we don't know. And it's cool i guess
3: so are the papers or is there, are there does the conference like save any of the talks or papers or anything so people can look somebody up and see what they talked
0: about so in the old days no in the old days it was like wicked and divine you had to be there right and if you could you could keep notes and you could be like hey i liked your paper could you send it to me and sometimes people would and like that was useful, or they'd be like, "Hey, yeah, this is part of my upcoming book. Please go buy it." And then like maybe you do that, right? That was the last year when it went online. Since they're all on Zoom, there is a store of them that like I can download as a member of PCA. I can go look at the conference from last year and see them. And I for they promised it would be available for up to a by year. By them you mean the talk videos of, of the okay. previous talks. Yeah. So I don't know if they're going to stay up after this year or not. But they're saying the same thing for this year. <laughs> but that's still not useful for regular people because it's very much a this is for people who are members of PCA and
4: all those people are at the conference. You know, mm-hmm. allows me to w- to watch your presentation that I won't be able to attend because I'm at work. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. Well, what's also nice okay. about it is even if you take time off to go to a conference right like if i go to the physical pca and wayne's talk is in one room at the same time that monica's talks in another room i i just lose i have to choose between my yeah. friends right like and that that has happened to me you know so would, would you pick would uh, you pick i Sophie's
2: mean, choice.
0: No, i'm going to make you fight over my love <laughs> <laughs> like, this is what cage matches were invented my <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but you'd have to choose. I like the recordings. I hope they keep them. I want mm-hmm. to be able to look things up. I think it's smarter. I think in the world
4: of podcasts and, you know, we get more bang YouTube. for a buck too. We're paying to be there. Yeah. If yeah. I can watch a lot more videos of presentations, that I couldn't physically go to, even if I were there. Right. And I, it's I, not I'd like more out of it.
0: And for what these are, you know, we are the kinds of nerds who watch them anyway. Right?
5: So frustrated and this is probably the time that Monica diatribes about accessibility again but like <laughs> we we put in so much work and then you get the 8 a.m time slot and then <laughs> six people are in your room yeah. and the six yeah. people mm-hmm. paid to be there and those and then there's this weird etiquette of like you're not supposed to ever re-give a conference talk so then it's sort of like dead and then you have to do mm-hmm. a bunch more work for it to become a paper and the idea of like you had to pay for a conference you to pay for membership, even when I do Comics Arts Conference, which I absolutely love. It's at San Diego Comic-Con, but that's still not accessible. That's mm-hmm. people who paid for tickets to Comic-Con, which are incredibly expensive.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and then they're mostly not going to academic. The, no, the academic they're mostly standing in
5: line more. for eight hours to watch a, a Marvel trailer. Hey,
4: I, I went to some of the, <laughs> the academic panels when I was at San Diego.
5: So. <laughs> I, I mean, I always go because i I feel like that's the thing that you invited me to do. You didn't invite me to stand for nine hours, like to go to a Marvel trailer. You invited me to give a talk and I'm there to hear other talks. But the amount mm-hmm. of people who come into my room to who, who stumble in and then they're like, Oh, this is a mistake. This is an academic. Yeah. <laughs> like it's, there's a frustration around the fact that I think that these talks like they should be on YouTube. They should be more accessible. That was a big reason yeah. that I chose to do the TEDx was knowing that something that exists out there for everyone to be able to access and watch without any sort of paywall that Oh, gosh. Like, listeners, if you ever want to hear a talk that I gave, I probably took a video of it on my phone and I will give it to you for free. I don't (laughs) think you want it, to be honest, but I'm just putting it out there that like... really isn't fair how inaccessible academia can be for Mm -hmm. people who want to learn see also journal articles yep
0: but that's kind of again why this show exists right it's why we started doing this and why it's not payroll it it is what it is this is now it's also our show isn't doesn't work like it doesn't work exactly like a conference and it doesn't work exactly like a journal but it is i hope some of the usefulness of it and fun.
1: I'm yeah. pretty sure we're cited in at least one dissertation.
0: I know. Well, I know we're cited a few places.
4: Actually, it's definitely weird. That's weird.
3: <laughs> <laughs> what are you doing? so yeah so I am like sorry I've been quiet because I've been re- I'm so far behind <laughs> like, I, I, this is really bad so I want to make sure I don't actually have to have a physical paper that I need to no. give people okay good because I'm just I was just planning on making a PowerPoint presentation that's
0: what, that's yep. what most people are not
4: those are the exact questions I asked Mav three years ago when I did
3: okay time. okay good
0: most, and, and again I'm not saying Hannah's wrong. Hannah is demonstrably right. Oh, she's yeah. just better than, oh, yeah. she's just better like, than we are. <laughs> but, it's good
3: I'm not to have a paper to give to somebody yeah, if they yeah. asked. <laughs> you know, okay. I think one
1: thing you could do is just like give slides or an outline, by the just for listeners too. If, if you're, you know, looking for like ways to be a little more accessible or have, find ways to like let people follow along, mm-hmm. if you don't have like a full fledged.
3: Yeah. So anyway, I guess I've kind of been using on this particular talk. This is like something completely new to me. This is my first non-just pure psychology or pure education conference that I've done. So I'm doing... I, I actually... Yeah, that's the title of my talk, but I'm, what I'm doing is I'm looking at movies that show development of expertise. I can tell you in, the title of your talk. Okay, thank one. you. In various <laughs> domains, including like, sort of like completely <laughs> mental domains, such as chess and sports domains, <laughs> just tennis, and domains sort of in the middle, like drumming, which is both a physical and a mental domain. <laughs>
0: So Steph's talk is called how realistic are recent American media portrayals of the development of of expertise. Hi, Stephanie. A-Syler.
3: Okay. Yeah. So that, like, the realistic part, I might have to take that out of my talk because there isn't like ver- there isn't like a great amount of consensus on what leads to expert performance. So there's like basically different camps of thought. One is like the deliberate practice thought, more like you know, being with effort and not just working hard, but working smartly, which involves having people there who can guide your performance, like expert coaches who know, you know who know what to do can like point out your mistakes. And the important thing is to learn from your mistakes and to grow from that. Then on the other no. camp that no. I was just yes. sort of, reading a paper is the effect of just uh, genetics. I think it's kind of a more unpopular camp because in psychology, you know, we are kind of optimists and we want to think that everyone can do whatever they want to do. But anyway, here's the camp where intelligence actually does. is highly predictive of expert performance. So it might it's possible there not, might not be you know, like a completely open field as to who can be experts, but that's not entirely known either. So I Yes, instead of like saying whether or not the portrayals are realistic, I'm planning on doing like a both a sort of mo- mostly a bottom-up analysis of the movies to see what are the common themes. Some of those that are, seem to be emerging are like themes such as some kind of diversity. Like it seems to be that like a socioeconomic adversity is one where people are poor, maybe like one parent is left and leading to sort of financial struggles in the family. Another type of diversity is It's just like you're not, you know, you are not the typical person who like racial, racially or gender wise, a person who's normally thought of as a person who does well in this field, like chess or mathematics, something like that. So anyway, I'm just looking at themes. I have some and I don't have like a great idea of what I'm going to do. But I I think I, I might also do a top down analysis, look at the qualities of what Erickson, uh, he's faculty at the University of Florida, who's like an expert in development of expertise. But he has like criteria for deliberate practice that which includes like the amount of practice and the quality of practice. But kind of one interesting thing I'm finding is that the movies that I'm um, watching are not really unfortunately from the perspective of the actual learner it's like from the perspective of parents or perspective of coach or like outsiders so. some of your movies?
0: he said knowing because he's been in the okay past, watching all the movies. so
3: <laughs> the main best the gold standard tv show would be queen's gambit but i also i'm trying to look at least a couple of different different Um, movies from each type of domain that's being developed. So I'm also I also looked at Queen of Cotwee I don't pronounce it. Queen of Cotwee. Cotwee. Okay, so that's another chess movie. And I've also looked at a couple movies about drum performance, Flash, which is like a really hard movie. Really hard. Yeah, and I had to watch it twice too. Oh no. Yeah. My heart shows out to you. Yeah, thanks.
0: Yeah, we've watched all of these twice actually.
3: Yeah, I like to just watch it a second time. Like I find that my brain needs like two viewing to really soak in the information <laughs> at the details, so then, I, and then that's on the second time, I actually take more detailed notes of it. I just watched Shine yeah, today at probably um, Immortal Beloved, which is the Beethoven movie, but not... He's already an adult in it, so I'm hoping that I can actually look at... He has like this apparent nephew. I'm the, sorry this, if this spoils the movie for anyone, but he adopts his nephew, but then it turns out that it's actually... And if he tries to turn him into this like musical prodigy this um, piano and composition prodigy but the kid just doesn't really have the talent for it Mm -hmm. and then it turns out that it's actually his son like he had an affair with his um, brother's wife before she got married (laughs) so anyway i'm hoping that i can see you know sort of development Mm -hmm. in that terms like a lot of the movies are problematic from my perspective just because By the time the movie starts, their adults have already developed their expertise.
0: Well, yeah, because I've got the benefit, at least with your paper of, you know, living here. So seeing you develop it. And I know one of the ones that you watch is one of my favorite movies, Drumline, which I love, but your problem with it was, well, he knows how... It's him becoming a better drummer is the story. It's not him learning how to drum because the movie starts with him getting into college on a drum scholarship because he's a really good drummer. Mm-hmm. He's so it's it's about him being a really good drummer and then becoming an amazing. Is sort of there's other there's more to the movie than that. Also him learning that you know teamwork was important all along and you know movie shit like that. Um, but, right. but but and then um, learning but learning
3: how to read drum which she didn't know how to do. Right. He got into college mm-hmm. on a. Scholarship, we're supposed to know how, music. but anyway, yeah. So I'm going to be, I think, looking at these movies from that sort of, I guess, probably both a top-down approach and a bottom-up approach, and just sort of seeing
2: what does what- that mean.
3: Oh well, um, so bottom-up just means looking at the the data, looking at the my analyses from the individual movies, and seeing what sort of common themes emerge. And the top-down approach is looking at the what some of the experts on Development of expertise, say, are the like the criteria to become experts according to their theories to see how that aligns with the different theories. So I and yeah, I don't really, I don't know like what. And it's possible that in the different domains, like chess versus maybe a sports domain, that like there are different like different parts of the theory, different criteria become like more like maybe intelligence might be more intelligence or working memory might be more important to like the domain of chess, whereas like some like if you
2: what maybe i'll
3: it? have to talk about gardner's theory of multiple intelligence too i just realized but what's that oh so instead of there being like one of general G, like I think it's small g actually, intelligence that is sort of correlated with all these other aspects of performance. There are different, different domains of intelligence, and some include uh, like verbal ability, uh, musical ability, sports ability. There are like several others. I think there's something like seven of them. So, yeah, so maybe it's possible that they're different, that we need to separate based on that. Like the original paper that I I read that I was planning on basing this on the deliberate practice paper by Erickson. Looked at the domains of chess and music, as in sight reading. The sight read, I guess that's core with um, expert performance in music, and then typing. So chess movies and um, music movies. And the problem with a music movie, I said, is that they're all adults by the time the movie starts and typing movies like nobody's going to actually make I'm a movie about typing.
0: <laughs> it's got to be out there.
3: <laughs> yeah, no, if it has, I haven't found it yet. <laughs> maybe there's maybe in the future. But
0: well, you did. What, was, what were some of the sports movies you looked at?
3: I looked at see, King Richard And Cool Runnings are the two that I have so far. But I think I'm going to look at Karate Kid. Soon, maybe tomorrow, not tonight. Yeah, and then also I'm kind of looking at whether the, there's there are differences in the portrayal of expertise based on like gender, ethnicity, and that kind of thing. Is uh, some there's some like I think in, like in Queen's gamut it's kind of interesting. Never any explicit mention by any of the characters about her in like direct, explicit that I remember about her intelligence, even though it's sort of implied because her mother PhD in math from Cornell. So there's like sort of the implication that she's more from that but they're I think they were very careful to like make any explicit mention but in other another movies like in the, uh, the Queen of Cotway they're they're very explicit in saying oh she is like, the, probably the most intelligent kid in kid in the village and mm-hmm. that's why she's chess mm-hmm. so it's kind of interesting like differences across movies terms of how they explain their, why they're so good at their particular pursuit. So anyway, yeah, I, I have a lot of work to do. I
0: think yours is interesting because PCA in theory is an interdisciplinary conference, but people with our background, meaning the host of the show, meaning people who do literary analysis are certainly among the larger groups of scholars there. There are a few, there are more cultural theorists, anthropologists, you know, and English teachers probably than anything else. And then there, you know, there's some sociology, there's some colleges, but I've gone to papers that are economic papers, which are fascinating, or stats papers, which are always fascinating. And it's always to me it's interesting. When there are people there who aren't just doing pure literary analysis because you can go to MLA and see that, you know, like this is what makes peace special. So I'm glad you're doing it.
3: Yeah. And I'm having, I'm actually enjoying watching them watching, <laughs> yeah. but I would not normally probably much like less emotionally healthy movies if just was watching TV. <laughs> <laughs> like these are all like, these are all inspirational movies that I'm watching. Are they? Well, um, no, I guess not no well i don't sure. of, I yeah, it, yeah yeah With, i think that's the let me make sure i think that's the one exception
0: i mean it's inspirational in that i guess he lives <laughs> I,
2: mean, <Yeah>. I, <laughs> I, I, can,
3: I guess
1: that is genuinely like a real concern for the viewer watching that movie
3: to be honest <laughs> yeah. Yeah. i'm yeah, not I making did. a joke yeah no <laughs> uh, yeah i did think he was gonna die <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah it's like oh doesn't die yay I mean I should say I actually (laughs) like the movie Whiplash a lot I think it's a really good movie but damn is it hard to watch and I'd seen it before and so geez spoilers for Whiplash a movie it's been four years I think
3: 2014
0: (laughs) oh wow is it really 2014 wow it's been eight years since Whiplash came out okay fine I'm not even playing our spoiler horn for it spoilers for (laughs) for Whiplash this movie from eight years ago there's a point um, where he is suddenly shockingly in a car accident and i knew it was coming and stuff's watching it for the first time and i'm just like waiting and i don't know if you could tell like i just kept peeking over at you looking to the side just because i want to see her face when it when the car hits and it's just literally out of nowhere and then suddenly holy shit (laughs) it's just like yes (laughs) (laughs) but it's it's, i like the movie but i mean hannah you said depressing Yeah. yeah like
1: in my memory actually i think so like josh and i watched together and I think that like we had to stop for some reason. And then he was like, so you want to put the movie back on? And I was like, nope, you finish it without me. I'm done. Well, so you've probably
0: you know? never seen the car crash.
1: <laughs> so I don't think I've well, like, I, I don't remember what point I get into what point I got like I finished because we watched it like when it barely like recently after mm-hmm. it came out. But like, yeah, I'm sorry. This is not helpful to your paper stuff. I, 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 I will <laughs> say just like I couldn't finish it once.
3: You've done it twice. Like
1: it was a little easier to
3: watch it- the second because I knew he didn't die at the end. (laughs) (laughs) So I do want to ask,
5: like, so Whiplash was my favorite movie of 2014. Like that was my we talked on our Oscar podcast about our our heart picks. That was my heart pick. Mm -hmm. And that was one where it really is a movie that is about the idea of like how much do you have to sacrifice if you want to be an artist, right? And I'm thinking through these examples that you've given stuff and i'm wondering how much is that a theme that you're coming across because it's something that comes across very clearly to me mm-hmm. in a product like queen's gambit yeah, not absolutely. something mm-hmm. that comes across to me super hard in a movie like cool runnings
2: no <laughs> well
0: well, no, but, well see uh, uh, queen's gambit absolutely right like she's she is a complete burnout wreck of a human being who can do nothing but play chess right and like right. and then at, like the and at the end right and at the end barely that because she's given up drugs and then so it's even affecting her ability to play. <laughs> to like she is a complete mess which is the point whiplash is about a guy who literally like like when he has the conversation with supergirl Melissa benoist plays his girlfriend <sighs> in the movie and he's like yeah so we're gonna have to break up because i'm just gonna resent you because you're gonna take away from my drumming (laughs) it is the best breakup scene ever and she's like and she's just looking at him the entire time like have you lost your fucking mind just great but you know it's these dysfunctional people right king richard it's not really about the girls it's about him Mm -hmm. but he's a dysfunctional human being that is making them great by proxy i think the theme is still there Core cool runnings, uh, yes, they don't sacrifice, but like it, they're only there because they had already lost out on the dream, right? So mm-hmm. I think it's the exact opposite, right? Because in core cool runnings, they're all supposed to be. Olympic runners. So, so
3: I was to answer Monica's question. Yeah. I was thinking Shine, which I just watched, is a great, I think a great okay. example of that is his father is, I guess, a um, concentration camp survivor. But he in music is like his whole life. He says okay. "There's like music is everything to him. And he says like anything, everything else will like, well, is fleeting, basically, but music will always be there. And for some <laughs> reason, he's obsessed <laughs> with one of like the most <laughs> difficult <laughs> Rachmaninoff piece. And he's always trying to To push this on his son and then his son's piano teacher keeps trying to resist that he's like he's too young he doesn't understand the emotions. he'll never it's not right and so he like he goes and he works with the piano teacher who teaches him Mozart which is age appropriate and not overly I guess emotional (laughs) which I kind of agree with but anyway so then but after he leaves the stops working with his piano teacher he starts working on Rachmaninoff and he plays it at this competition, and he and this other pianist are like the top two. And he ends up losing because he couldn't handle Rachmaninoff. <laughs> and like the guy that he's working with, John what's his name? Gildor? Anyway, the famous actor, Gil, I can't say his Gilder, name. I
0: believe. What is it? I think it's Gil- Gilder, I think. No, no, sure.
3: Gilder. I-, I don't know. But, but anyway, he is a uh, professor, and he has pers- personally knew Rachmaninoff. So he's all in about. The cat you know, pushing him to learn this. And he does, <laughs> he learns it. He plays it at a competition. He wins the competition, but sort of like in whiplash, he ends up, he ends up like passing out <laughs> on the floor. Then he they, they take him away to a mental institution. So yeah, that, that obsession that he's gotten from his father, even though he initially was sick for sort of music's sake, but just the drive to play this most difficult piece of music sort of overtook him and kind of like, they portrayed in the movie as if it destroyed him and drove him to the mental institution, but I think it was he had some more of a genetic thing. He had, I think, schizoaffective disorder.
4: Galgood Gilgilgood, I believe is That's was, so, so hard to say. Sir John Gilgood. Gil Gilgood. yes, yeah. thank you. Mm-hmm. Yes.
3: Anyway, he was sir. but yeah, that I think that's the only other way where that kind of theme is at least obvious. So you
0: don't consider that losing I mean, obviously I can't tell you the psychology like of realism, but maybe that's the literary analysis is that we don't believe that genius is possible unless you give up everything else, at least not narratively, right? Like it will consume you, right? Like you, like, so in, in shine or in whiplash, you're going to play the drums so hard. You're going to drum like you think your heart's going to explode because you're drumming so hard, so passionately, you know? And, and I wonder like, like that happens with Queen's Gambit, right? She's, you know, descending into madness because all the, Matters is chess, right? Like you want to see somebody overcome adversity, right? right so. Yeah,
3: that's that's yeah.
0: But the, do we always have have to to the adversity to the job? Con- I don't
3: know. Yeah, I think yeah, that is a theme. But I think that it yeah, there at least those movies try to show sort of negative side of pushing too hard, too fast.
0: <laughs> what yeah. do you do with things like Rocky? You know, like is that because you've talked about the domains of genius, and that's a sport movie, but it's still a sport <laughs> movie about him essentially rising up to become the greatest boxer right mm-hmm. yeah. R- rocky and and the creed movie. Or what about something like I don't know, Bad News Bears, Major Leagues, you know, the team movies where they where the team is the sucky team that you know works their ass off and you know and wins the championships, Mighty Ducks. Right?
3: Yeah, yeah, I think Rocky's a good one. It does make it to like the highest levels of the sport, but for Bad News Bears, they're still kids. I mean, they're winning against kids, but okay. It's but too Major short Leagues is time frame.
0: Major League is, is is the same thing, right? Major League is basically Bad News Bears, but with adults.
3: Yeah, but they're adults when it starts, so I think. I mean. OK, I
0: see. You okay. want to see a progression. Yeah,
3: I, yeah. Childhood. Mm-hmm. Although it's not it's hard to find a movie that shows that.
0: <laughs> I mean, I, like, I guess Creed does it. You don't see most of it, right? Like you meet him when he's like seven and then you see him again when he's like 20 something.
3: Uh, I haven't seen Creed. Okay. But yeah, Rocky might
0: work. Creed's the same story as Rocky. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> it's, it's very good, but it's Rocky. You guys have seen it, right? Has anybody seen it? No. No. Oh, oh OK. Everyone should see Creed. It's very good, oh. but it's basically Rocky. <laughs> It's <laughs> Michael B. Jordan's in it. He does a very good job of playing young Sylvester Stallone and old Sylvester Stallone plays Mickey, you know, Burgess Meredith. <laughs> oh, okay. I can do mine, I guess, because I'm not done. I'm working my way through it. And one of the weird things about the way PCA work is, and actually I think this is true of literary and cultural studies type conferences a lot. And I think less so for the kind of conferences stuff usually does, where usually when you go to, when you apply, to a conference, you've already written the paper. You're done. You're just trying to see if you get in or not. And for me, it's more like I submit an abstract and then see if anybody wants it. And if they say yes, then I work on the paper. Sometimes and, months later. And, and <laughs> yeah. also
1: important to note, sometimes your paper does not look like your abstract. So that's yep. fine.
0: That is about what I'm about. To, that's what I'm about to talk about. Oh, <laughs> so, okay, <great. laughs> because so the original idea I called my paper, Eduction of the Innocent. Eduction, which is seduction without the S in the front of it. it. It's a joke. It's a pun on the book, Seduction of the Innocent by Frederick Wortham. Eduction means sort of to bring out. It's to, you know, it it is to bring out the innocent. And my argument was normalizing sex positivity through through perversion and the semiotics of the comic book gates. My argument that I mentioned in my abstract is that I was looking at three erotic comic books of, in particular. One being my, all, my all-time favorites, Omaha the Cat Dancer. Another being Small Favors. And then the third being uh, Lost Girls, Alan Moore's Lost Girls. This came up because last year at PCA, I was challenged. Someone said, you should do something on Lost Girls next year. And I was like, eh, I don't actually love Lost Girls, but I think it's an interesting thing. So I was like, all right, let me work and see if I come up with something on Lost Girls. And I realized that one of the things it's interesting about lost girl is it this entire story that is about the erotic lives of alice from wonderland wendy from peter pan and dorothy from oz as adults meeting up having sex with each other and reminiscing about the times in which they had sex as children, which is what was really going on when all of their stories that you've read about happened. So through the course of this book, you learn that there is no Oz, there is no Wonderland, and Peter Pan is not magic. These are all the erotic adventures of of young teen girls in their stories that they are thinking about and sort of acknowledging this is the way that they told the story in their minds to deal with childhood sexuality. It's a really weird-ass book that Alan Moore, who does a lot of weird-ass books. To be fair, but, Alan Moore and Melinda Gebby are he, part of reading this book because she drew it, he wrote it, and reading this reads like here is a couple and these are the erotic stories they tell to each other and they're shit the world. So it's an interesting look into their fantasy lives to read it. But I started dwelling on it more and thinking about, well, what this really is, it's among other things, it's a deconstruction of fairy tales, right? And it's him sort of dwelling on them in the same way he does in League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. In fact, it's got the same kind of concept of, you know, they are whatever age they were when their books came out, so, it's, so they age in real time, and it probably fits into the League of, of Extraordinary Gentlemen world. So I started thinking about that, and I started thinking about what kinds of stories they were telling, and then I started comparing it to small favors, which is Colleen Hoover. It's her first book. And this is the story of a young woman named Annie, who appears to be a writer analog, who masturbates too much. And then one day, she uh, falls asleep and she goes into fairy land where a character who represents her conscience tells her, you have used up your allotted masturbation for life. You're not allowed to masturbate. <laughs> you are not allowed to masturbate anymore. And to stop you from doing this, we are sending Nibble, this like fairy girl, uh, this fairy conscience, Kind, you know, like, a, you know how in. In cartoons, you have the fairy that sits on your shoulder and that's your conscience, you know? So, yeah. So they send Nibble to watch out for her and make sure she doesn't masturbate anymore. And they send her back to human land and with Nibble. And Annie immediately seduces Nibble and they become (laughs) and and they have sex, not masturbation. And so
1: so I love it.
0: Yeah. Loophole. Right. So. (laughs) So. So the story starts off being this. And Colleen Hoover says that this is a story that she wrote when she wanted to explore her own bisexuality. She was working through things in her in in her own life. And that's what Small Favors is really about. And it moves very quickly from the story of Annie and Nibble to Annie and Nibble and they meet another girl sage. And so you question what is what does it mean to be bisexual or lesbian? What does it mean to be polyamorous? Can you have an open sexual relationship and a closed romantic relationship? And really just lots and lots of porn. But visually it looks like a YA fantasy, exactly like anything that you know, it's the the art style, Colleen Coover's art recalls hmm, maybe Lumberjanes, Paper Girls. It's, it, it's very much a I it book, except for it's just lots of lesbian sex. That's all it is, page page after page. And it's weird to look at because of it. And then I added to that Omaha the Cat Dancer, which, and also Fritz the Cat. I, start, I realized after I wrote my abstract, I started thinking about those, which are funny animals. You know, basically Omaha the Cat Dancer is drawn about like Mickey Mouse or um, Bugs Bunny. But it's the story of a cat named Omaha, and she's engaged in this, you know, crime drama, but with lots of sex. It's it's basically a film noir in comics or more oh if you've never read it yeah omaha is brilliant but with tons and tons of sex in it and again dealing with questions of bisexuality and lots of omaha is extremely queer positive for something that was written over driving. yeah yeah omaha is like crazy and order to get. It. but the story ends up being frankly beautiful for a story that is essentially predicated on hey this is this is furry porn which is where it starts but like the but the actual storyline is very deep and very romantic and it's the story it's a very loving story the way it runs out so i started thinking about this i was going to work through the semiotics of i was going to work with with the kinds of things that i normally do which is looking at mcleod stuff and my theory was the reason these stories in particular resonate is because, as McLeod says, you can put yourself in the place of the characters if you have simplified artwork, right? And I was thinking that that's kind of what, what's going on with small favors, right? Like you can look at this and you can say, I can explore my lesbian side as well. And that's like the story that they're trying to tell. And I'm, And my argument was drawing these as children's characters allows that to happen. And then I start looking at, and I will probably mention this, there's an article called Literature for Us Older Children, Lost Girls, Seduction Fantasies, and the Reeducation of Adults by Eric L. Tribunella, who goes into a lot of the ideas that, that I was thinking about and, and that I was working with. And I was like, I like this. He does some of what now he's sticking to Lost Girl, but he does a lot of what I was trying to think about. He comes up with different conclusions than I did, but he does the same kind of analysis where he's looking at it's like sort of the male gaze issue of it and the Freudian analysis of it and kind of looking through and mixing it with McLeod stuff. But as I started working on that, I also started thinking about some stuff that was going on in real life, like right now. And so as we record, it's April 8th on March 31st of 2022 the following tweet was posted child groomers and pedophiles they have now openly admitted that they have a not so secret agenda with children this is the death of Disney hashtag boycott Disney and to similarly (laughs) the following came from the employees of Disney are apparently ready to indoctrinate your kids in queer theory and wokeness and sexual indoctrination this is what they are ready to do I don't say this because I am attributing motive to them I say this because they said it there was an all hands meeting over at Disney, in which multiple employees talked about spooning a bunch of left-wing sexual values into children's programs. They said, in fact, that this was their goal. Ben Shapiro, March thirty-first, twenty-two 2022, (laughs) from the Ben Shapiro show. And then this other one. I am referring to 10, 11, 12, 13-year-old girls prostituting themselves to adults. It is my opinion, without any reasonable doubt, and without any reservation, that comic books are an important contributing factor in many cases of Juvenile delinquency. Wayne recognizes that quote. Yeah. That would be Frederick Wortham, April 21st, 1954. <laughs> um, the Senate subcommittees on June delinquency and i realized that owens and shapiro and also lauren brobert tried to do the same thing except mickey mouse's name wrong and then people wouldn't even address her her thing they would only address the fact that she left the the e out of mickey mouse and realized (laughs) and just made fun of her relentlessly because there's a fucking song with his name in it <laughs> oh, but anyway, so, so she didn't even really get to be part of the conversation. But what they're trying to do is they're trying to do boycott Disney for the children because, um, because literally almost 68 years to the day, they're trying to like take sex out of comics and cartoons for this moral children's crusade that didn't fucking make sense in 1954. That's what William Gaines said. No, that's not what we're doing. And frankly, the comics that are for children, like if you read uncle Scrooge comics from 1954, they're very innocent. The actual Disney comics that are for children are super innocent because they were for children. The stuff that Worthing was worried about, like in, you know, crime suspense stories weren't for little kids. And I think that's true now. And I don't know what, like, when Owens and Shapiro see... Them spoon feeding the woke agenda to to kids. They're you know they're basically talking. Well, we don't like. There's you know there's gay people in the background of Toy Story. Like it's barely there, right? Like they're like you're, you're, you're I can see stuff's face. like, where are the gay people in Toy Story? Yeah, it's literally there's a little girl hugs her mom who's standing next to another woman. So presumably she has two moms. Like it's like, like there's literally nothing for you to like really hang on to. And like I wish Disney had the progressive woke. Sexual agenda that, that Ben Shapiro thinks like I'd be way more into this, right? Like, I'm, well, I'm not, yeah. it's not there. We, so,
1: we've, we've talked about in the show, right? Like, that every like moment between like two gay people in a Disney film can be edited out, like,
0: right? So, you can air it in, in other countries,
2: mm-hmm.
0: yeah, yeah, like, there, yeah, the um, like, even in something like Star Wars not like you know yeah. kid stuff there's the lesbian kiss on the side of the screen literally so they can crop it and play it in countries where where gay kisses are illegal it is yeah so yeah. easy to eternals, get rid of.
1: yeah eternals is like the first marvel thing that like on, on film i th- if yeah. i recall like that that really actually like had more than like a brief mention. Like, yeah. Endgame
0: has a guy say, a, a man say that he like, but it's like yeah. one line. It's all, it's always super easy to get rid of. Like they're not really doing actual anything for it. Like Elsa is probably gay in Frozen 2. It matters to the story. Not at all. She has a couple of loving looks at a female character. Mm-hmm. That, like you can totally ignore as opposed to Sleeping Beauty, Cinderella, Snow White, Aladdin, Little Mermaid. You know, all the other princess movies are literally even Anna in Frozen. Anna absolutely makes that with Kristoff. Right. So so it doesn't have this gay agenda. But then I started thinking about, well, but wait, if we're, we're calling for this, what I think becomes interesting is what makes this work is all of the simplified semiotic stuff that we're talking about. Right. Like the reason we make a pornographic story like Lost Girls, which is very childlike. Alan Moore is is capable of writing much more adult fare. It's been his entire career, right? He's capable of doing something that's not a fairy tale. He could do Promethea. Promethea literally builds to a sex scene. Like <laughs> probably the most important, the, the most important um, moment of the comic Promethea is a comic where she has sex with an old man for 20 something pages and Describes the meaning of the universe while they're fucking. Um, yeah. <laughs> that's the story, and it's part of the story of promethea yeah. And I'm saying it dismiss. If you read promethea it sort of makes sense that they and get ma- there. And
4: ma- magic wands and grails. Yeah,
0: yeah and it's <laughs> like okay, I see where you're going with. And then, and frankly, once that part's over, I'd say that's the climax. No pun intended of the sewer so- of the storyline. Because after that, like Prometheus, sort of gets boring after that to me. Like <laughs> it's sort of where it's going. But he's capable of doing more adult fair. I think that the argument I think I'm making is. Fairy tales, children's stories allow us to normalize things like lesbian and gay relationships, polyamory, the things that happen in Lost Girls, Small Favors, and uh, Omaha. It allows us to normalize queer behavior in a way that I don't know works as well in a more fantastic book. And what I'm saying is I'm thinking back on our episodes that we've done about super sex when we've had Anna on a friend of the show (laughs) and and my co-host who who we met at PCA. At PCA. Anna Papard has been on, she has a whole book called super sex. And one of Anna's criticisms frequently of some portrayals of sex in comic books is often there will be what Anna would call boring sex, which is you'll have two characters who are, superheroes who have superpowers and they will have very human normal sex. Like they won't use the powers. You won't see them flying. You won't see them floating objects around if they have, you know, like her theory is if you're nightcrawler and got a tail, of course you would use the tail. Banana would yeah. say, right? Like, well, like otherwise, what the fuck's the point, right? It's part of his body is, you know, but a lot of times these are presented in very normalized ways. But my argument, I think, is in something like small favors, nibble. Remember, I said she was a little fairy princess that could shrink. She shows that she has the magical power to grow into a normal sized human in like issue two, and then almost never turns back into a fairy. Like she does, uh, she does sometimes, but for the most part, she stays a regular sized woman because it's easier to have sex when you're you know five four than you are than it is when you're four inches. So like no, she never, all I
5: could think of is the
0: the infamous Ant Man. Ant Man, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, but, but see, that's the thing. Like in, but that's, my, but that's my, entire point. In for it's infamous, but like in that storyline, and I think I actually might use that one. I was actually thinking it because it matches with Nibble, right? In that storyline, there they show that Hank Pym and Janet Van Dyne use their shrinking and growing powers when they're having sex with each other, because of course they would, they can do interesting things if they're, if they, you know, that way, but in, in small favors, you know, they sort of get bored of the, Hey, let me shrink down and crawl inside of your vagina. They get bored of that one after issue two. And from that point on, it's just about what does it mean to be having this three-way, all-female relationship between Sage, Nibble, and Annie? And she's like, oh, yeah, Nibble can shrink. That's cool, but it never comes up, right? Like, it's it, it's more about just having normalized sex because I think the fantastic thing of these stories is that the dream is that everyone treats your your open lesbian relationship as normal. The dream is not that you can shrink. <laughs> you know, it's like, mm. like uh, that's that's like... Mm. I think the story becomes like hey we can you know same thing with lost girls lost girls throughout the narrative of lost girls you find out that every single fantastic thing that happened in peter pan or alice or oz is the fancies of a teen girl of a 14 15 year old girl and really she was just out having sex with like neighborhood boys you know one who was kind of smart one who was kind of strong one who was kind of brave right like like that's like what you learn It's all literally these are just the things that she told her parents. Stuff. These are the illusionary fancies. But like the the actual fantasy is, you know, why can't a woman in the early 20th century just own her sexuality? That's the story. So I think that what you end up saying is doing this in a childlike story allows you to do this in a very moralistic way, in a way that a more fantastic story where you actually are using your shrinking powers to have sex or like Wendy in the normal story, Wendy can fly. Like that would be interesting if you were going to use it for sex, but no, they don't go there. Instead, they're just like, no, she just wants to be able to have lesbian relationships. So that's where I'm going. And trying to argue that children's comics for adults, which is how I'm phrasing it, these, allow you the freedom to explore moralistic issues in a way that Ben Shapiro and Candace Owens fear were. Because I think that we actually do, even though we say we don't really want to indoctrinate children. Of course we do. We want children to be OK with lesbian relationships. We want children to be OK with polyfamilies. Like the point of doing this, the reason why you want to normalize this is not because you're looking to make a kid like have sex but you want it to be okay that like a kid reads this book and says oh you have two mommies and a daddy just like in frozen like that would be ideal or at least that's where i think i'm going my only
2: question Uh,
5: is how you're gonna do that in 15 minutes yeah (laughs)
2: yeah
0: i'm working on it (laughs) it's always it's always a process
3: an interesting idea
0: yeah and and that's it's it's very much evolving because what How I'm going to do it in 15 minutes is I think I'm going to be dropping a lot of the semiotic stuff to get to, I mean, I know my room is going to know McLeod theory, so I don't need to cover it. I can say, right. Big triangle pointing over here. Okay. Moving on. Right. But you know, I'm going to, I'm going to focus on how all three of these books are auspiciously about kink and erotica. I don't think any of the three of them really are, you know, small favors is the most sexy. It's like 90% of small favors is just pages of porn. But I think the message behind it is much deeper. I think I'm, that's where I think i with it.
5: I'll own my bias, Mav, and that's that I feel like semiotics is always the least interesting part of analysis. <laughs> not that it's not useful as a baseline, mm-hmm. but I always want people to then be like a little bit more post-structuralist about it and be like, mm-hmm. and so what? And so I would agree that seems to be the... If I could really describe the thing that, that I like to do and that I feel like I want your paper to be it is the you keep using that word, but I don't think that word means what you think it means. <laughs> yeah, and so that for me is the fact that you are teaching me to look at porn differently. Mm-hmm. And I'm all here for it.
0: Yeah, I think I almost wish I I almost wish I just called this you know instead of normalizing you know, the, my long title which I came up with before I really knew what I was doing. I almost wish I just called it porn. For, you know, for kids.
1: Can, <laughs> can you change your title? Why not? I cross out your original title and replace it with your new title. And that way you can technically follow PCA rules for the program, but you can still have your cross outs.
4: Mm -hmm. You can slide with this title. You put the no symbol over the the circle with the cross (laughs) Mm -hmm. and and then you just have the new title up in its place. Yeah. I'll I'll figure something out.
5: (laughs) Anyway. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I I would, I actually feel like mad back to semiotics. I think there's like, Some guideline I received from PCA, maybe it was just the games panel in 2019 that was like, no one cares about your theory. Get to the good stuff.
2: Yeah, Um,
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think and I think that's what it is. I think the theory in order to get to the interesting argument, which which is fine, except for the problem that Monica said, which is like, does this ever become a paper anywhere? In which case I'll put it back in or does it not matter because the interesting argument is all there is to it and I don't know that's a weirdness of how academic conferences Mm -hmm. speaking of Monica
2: speaking of
0: Monica speaking of
4: Monica
5: (laughs) Monica and and someone who's been thinking about changing your title (laughs) and someone who has been struggling with needing to give two pieces of background because I'm giving you comic book context and fashion context so my original title was Marvel's Met Gala defining mutant (laughs) fashion at the Hellfire Gala, I'm thinking we are a little bit more like Marvel does the Met mutant fashion and the Hellfire Gala, because I've decided that it's a little bit boring to define mutant fashion. So,
0: <laughs> Which was the thesis of your entire talk originally. Yeah, but at the same
2: time,
5: we're not going to not talk about mutant fashion. We're just not going to define what mutant fashion is we're going to talk about why mutant fashion is important as a concept because i think that's a little bit more relevant and more interesting who knows you guys will tell me that's what this is for (laughs) so for those of you who don't know in 2021 marvel comics released the hellfire gala story arc And they did it across 12 X-Men titles, which makes it the largest crossover event in X-Men mutant history, like Mm -hmm. publication history. And...
0: Didn't involve the rest of the Marvel Universe. It
5: did not involve the rest of the X-Men specific,
0: yeah.
2: The
5: Mm -hmm. largest X-Men specific crossover, because we obviously have things like Secret Wars, which was also 12 issues, but that was very purposefully like for bringing Mm -hmm. all of your favorite titles together. This is... X-Men, X-Men crossover. And a lot of the marketing hype materials were sort of driven by the release of artwork that was done by Russell Dodderman. And he designed formal wear for a lot of the characters and there was a lot of releasing of variant covers that showed 360 versions of the costumes. There were variant covers in which the characters were sort of spread out as if they were standing on they call it a green carpet but it's like a red carpet there was a on marvel's instagram account they had another artist phil noto draw these photos of a frost supposedly getting ready and showing people sort of behind the scenes as if she's an influencer for the hellfire gala so There's, and then there's also within fan response, this really, you were very much encouraged to play the fashion critic, decide if you liked or didn't like these renditions of mutant formal wear. They were described as, they were supposed to depict the fusion of mutant human fashion, but for the most part, the vernacular that sort of came out was like, just being like, oh, Marvel does high fashion, or these looks are our fashion and there was a lot of comparison to the Met Gala which is another one of those for those of you who don't know the Met Gala is the one of the fashion industry's largest events it's usually something that's referred to as like the Oscars of the East Coast and at the Metropolitan Museum of Art there is a Costume Institute, which houses um, the world's largest costume and textile and fashion collection. However, the Costume Institute is also the only part of the Met that does not receive funding from the Met, so it has to fundraise itself. So it has to fundraise any of its acquisitions, any of its exhibitions, any of its anything has to be fundraised by an outside Source. And so they hold the Met Gala every year as the one fundraising event that's supposed to then fund the Institute for the entire year. And that pays for all of the staff, all of the, like, literally keeping the lights on and the, the fridges on, all of the everything. So it's millions and millions of dollars. The Met Gala, you've probably seen it because a lot of celebrities are invited. And it also has this very large, like, red carpet presentation. And so when we talk about my background, like, I'm a fashion historian. I did my master's literally in museum curation in New York City. I work in costume exhibition installation. My research surrounds the clothes that superheroes wear when they're not wearing their normal costumes. And my master's thesis was on Claremont's run of the X-Men. And so it was this project made for me?
2: Like, <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
5: literally all of the things sort of line up where I was like, I can't not talk about the Hellfire Gala. Especially because there's just so much emphasis on this is fashion. When you actually read the hellfire gala it is presented as being a sort of state dinner within the text where Emma Frost who is the president of the hellfire trading company invites mutants and non-mutants to Kreko, which is like mutant haven island we'll call it like the capital country (laughs) of mutants And invites mutants and non-mutants to come to this party. And it's very much presented similar to the Met Gala, which is a cocktail hour and a big fancy dinner. And there's a musical performance. And at the event, they vote who the new members of the X-Men are going to be for the year, which is a very common practice within comics. The Avengers used to do it every couple of years where they would have a vote and they would switch up the team. But the other sort of really big event that happens is a bunch of the Omega level mutants, which are the most powerful mutants, terraform Mars and create a new planet it can now be a safe haven mutants. There's a lot of other things going on in the background where you learn that the Hellfire Trading Company, they have also been developing a lot of life-extending and life-saving drugs, but they've been distributing those drugs via a black market network and people have found out about the black market network. There's a lot of countries that don't want to accept the drugs. The idea that the mutants can just claim Mars for themselves is the entire message is we are hosting this party to show mutant pride and to aim for mutant diplomacy and mutant acceptance. Mm-hmm. And I thought that this was going to be a project where we talked a lot about the Met Gala. It's kind of not a project where we talk a lot about the Met Gala. <laughs> it's kind of a project where one us to talk about ideology. Mm-hmm. Because one of the the most common sort of phenomenologies of when a new political regime takes over, when a new country establishes itself, it tries to do so by showing that it has cultural power or influence. And one of the really easy ways that you see that established is via fashion and style. So reason that France is seen as such a large cultural power in the fashion industry is Louis XVI, the Sun King, pumped a bunch of money into the textile industry, into embroidery, into creating a cultural export in the United States when we became independent colonies and we had won the Revolutionary War. One of the very first cultural patents that are issued for moccasin, footwear is then X. to Europe, as well as other forms of like shirts that resemble Native American clothing that then becomes appropriated and westernized and becomes a cultural export in Europe. There's this idea that we are not actually a new nation. What we are is something that has been here all along. And one of the easiest ways to reinforce that was by pulling on the imagery that existed earlier to establish our history, but also by exporting this new cultural product. See it again in communism as new political regimes take over. There is a lot of calling back to traditional ethnic dress as a form of modesty that fits within uh, communist propaganda and the idea of um, being connected to the country and to agriculture, for example. So, the thing that is interesting to me about the Hellfire Gala. That this is a state dinner, which is an assertion of the autonomy of mutant kind as a nation, which is being done through the creation of what is considered this brand new fusion of high fashion and mutant style. Fashion is already very established as the thing that you can do to assert your power, especially through by like exuding this ideology. The thing that I want us to think about. The thing that connects us back to the Met Gala is this idea of where is the power stemming from? That's the, for me, there is this this space of we are reinforcing the hegemony and the ideology by saying that something is fashion. But what is that thing that we are deciding? So in the Met Gala, because is a fundraiser. It is inherently always going to be a little bit capitalist. We look at the people who are in charge of the Met Gala, we have Anna Wintour and Andrew Bolton, and despite the fact that they've received a lot of pushback in the past few years of saying that voices represented within the museum should be more diverse, they seem to really continue to double down on the idea that fashion itself is incredibly Eurocentric. Which we know is not accurate, but it's the thing that they seem to push out. We know for a fact that they are incredibly biased because there have been lots of events where Anna Wintour has purposefully snub designers that should have been included in the theme of the exhibition. Another thing that sort of gets a little iffy as to why it doesn't really work to compare the Hellfire Gala and the Met Gala is the Met Gala has a theme every year. So next year, it's going to be the Gilded Age. And designers are, it's a weird thing. So designers are invited and they're allowed to bring a muse, but you also have to pay For your seat at the table, and your seat at the table is like $30,000. So you're invited to be allowed to purchase a (laughs) ticket. If you wanna buy a whole table, that's $250,000. So it raises about $13 million per gala. Like each of the designers, despite the fact that Anna Wintour, who's the chief editor of Vogue, has her hand in every pot in terms of deciding the theme. And deciding what fashion is and which fashions are exhibited, all of the designers who are invited still have a slight bit of creative freedom, where they are supposed to dress their muse according to the theme, which is mm. how you end up with sometimes there being people who are dressed credibly, offensively, or appropriatively when there's a theme like Catholic religion, which was a few years ago, and Rihanna showed up in a in a Pope's outfit, and a bunch of people were like, mm, no, no, Rihanna. But that's because Anna Wintour didn't have her hand in saying yes or no Mm -hmm. on that garment because she has a lot of control, but there are still places of freedom. Mm -hmm. However, (laughs) in the Hellfire Gala, all of the clothes are depicted diegetically within the story as being designed by one person, by Jumbo Carnation, who is the personal dressmaker and designer for Emma Frost. There is a huge thing that I like is super important within looking at costume history and fashion history in comics. And that's where did the costume come from? So each of these clothes kind of look like they're meant for the individual person because they're based off of each individual person's powers. They Mm -hmm. are, in fact, Jumbo Carnation and Emma Frost's idea of who each of these heroes are. It's very similar to the way that Charles Xavier gave costumes to every member of the X-Men when they first started. And then over time, they chose their own outfits. And so this idea of are you projecting an ideology onto them or are they attempting to express their autonomy through dress is really important. So Mm. I'm having a little bit of struggle connecting Met Gala, which essentially has been like just the most postmodern rip from the headlights without any context of what it is. And it's being used to basically reinforce the legitimacy of the mutant nation or how fun it is that we have dressed everyone up in high fashion. When instead, it's actually detracting from very problematic narrative that really reminds me of theories like uh, Mm -hmm. Walter Benjamin's because there is that sort of like, ideology can be communist or fascist. Like it and for someone like Benjamin in the thirties who's literally dies trying to escape fascism, like that that's a very real dangerous consequence. And so the idea that we are using fashion as this fun thing to advertise a bunch of issues about a comic that is actually as much as we keep trying to paint Emma Frost as like the good guy, she's not the good guy. She's never gonna be yeah. the good guy. And the idea of terraforming an entire planet and being like, this is actually mutant pride and mutant supremacy, which has always sort of been a black and white problem within X-Men narratives, right? Of are you going to, anyone who's only ever seen an X-Men movie, it's a, are you a Magneto or are you an Xavier? And we generally agree that Magneto's mutant supremacy thing is bad. And so, (laughs) and not that Charles Xavier isn't on his own incredibly problematic, but, but we generally agree. The idea of supremacy of anyone is bad. Uh, And we have created an event that is about supremacy and we have decided that we should use fashion as the thing to detract from the real message that to me is a real issue and is corrupting uh, what could have been like there's something wrong about calling it fun. I I suppose it's a bit like when we look at (laughs) Chanel and continue to buy Chanel handbags and continue to talk about how awesome Chanel is while ignoring the fact that she had, like, Nazi boyfriend through all of World War Two. So I is another one where I'm like how are we going to fit that in 15 minutes I don't know
0: (laughs) so when you're talking like literally say that because the thing that I was struck by is you're saying well how do we compare it to to the the Met Gala because it's not really the same thing because of the single author but also I think that always that strikes me or now always that it was last year's Met Gala of Of the very concept of the Met Gala is it's become this thing where, oh, this is where the fashion designers get to make their statements, right? So then you have my favorite one being last year's dress of AOC, who got to go to the Met Gala. I was thinking about that too. With her eat the rich dress. And it's like, you know, it's like, oh, AOC, woman of the people, that's her entire gimmick, right? Like her entire and I get that she's a Congress, she's in Congress now. So she's not really poor but she is the working man's hero, right? She is, I'm still just a bartender like from New York. That's who she is. Right. That's who that's. And I like her by the way. So this is not a criticism of her. What except that it is because she went there with a dress that said, eat the rich. And it's like, eat the rich you're at a banquet that costs $30,000 and like exactly she was questioned on it she was like well yeah I am but like I didn't actually pay for it you know she was comped And she's like, and I didn't buy this dress. I'm just borrowing it. I'm wearing it. So therefore, and I'm like, and it's like, yeah, but that's not actually better because the privilege of being able to be to the $30,000 Met Gala and given clothes to wear there is again, still sort of capitalism is all consuming, right? Like you, you are now a cog in the ticket. And how do you not do that?
5: Yeah. The spectacle that has been created of the Met Gala, and specifically associating it with celebrity that ignores the fact that it is a fundraiser for a museum that cannot exist without money, which one makes it biased. Two, mm-hmm. the person in charge of it is their whole job is selling magazines, which also makes it biased. And three, it is a person who is not actually interested in like actually defining what fashion is or could be. And then we use the Met as the the pinnacle of our definitions and conceptions of fashions, mm-hmm. which means it is only ever going to perpetuate what is an already broken system and the spectacle of the Met Gala one in which they're like, just look at the pretty clothes and don't think about it.
0: So doesn't Hellfire Gala become exactly that? Because exactly. Hellfire yeah. Gala is a parody I'm saying very loosely of the Met Gala. Without realizing that it is. Yes. The, well, but,
2: yeah,
0: well, but, it, but it's also if nothing else, it is an instantiation of a fictional version of the Met Gala as a, you know, mutant pride is what it's supposed to represent. And yet it is created by literally the second richest corporation on the fucking planet <laughs> you know like disney owns at the end of the day it's being created by disney for a comic book which is a feeder property to the most successful movie franchise of all time like i know the x-men aren't in the mcu yet but they're going to be and that's what that's also is, this the most is.
5: financially successful comics within
0: marvel's right. mm-hmm. repertoire Right. And the entire concept of it, they're appropriating the Met Gala because it's the recognizable thing, right? If you're going to do one thing and have a fashion, it's the one to do because it's the name that people know. So it all just becomes about spectacle for the the sake of capitalism.
5: Yes. And spectacle is not fashion because when you look at the Met Gala, there's a bunch of getting dressed up uh, as fitting a theme, which means what you're wearing is a costume. His costume is that thing that is static and recognizable. And the very act of getting dressed up via theme means that you have to be recognizable, which does again bring us back to semiotics but this idea of like that's not fashion at all and these clothes that we've described as the fusion of mutant fashion and high fashion and met gala fashion fashion either and so there is this like do i want to define mutant fashion fucking no i don't i want to talk about ideology and why ideology can be bad
0: (laughs) that's the keepers are for
5: So, and I mean, oh, for anyone sorry. who was hoping I was going to play uh, Joan Rivers with any outfit of the Hellfire Gala, we will not. That
2: is yeah, not well, that's for,
0: and, and that's kind of what makes PCA papers interesting, right? I mean, there's going to be a lot of naked pictures in my talk <laughs> because by, by its very nature of what I'm doing, that's what I'm doing. I'm not even sure how I'm going to censor them, but it's... It, it, and... Arguably, I'm talking about normalizing sexuality for children, but also for adults. And I like I. I it's going to be chaotic and it's not going to be let's look and talk about the sexiness of this comic. That's not what I'm doing. Right. And I don't. So I, so I think it's fine for you to not do the like I, I'm i not going to PCA to hear you do the normal comic book fan. Here's the outfits I like. Here's the outfits I don't like. Like I'm also I'm not even listening to Vox Pop to do that. And that's not a complaint about other podcasts because I actually do listen to some podcasts where they did that with the Bellfire Gala and I enjoyed it. But that's not what we do. And I think it's okay for that not to be placed as, you know, an academic fan. Vox podcast our entire concept, it places us in this weird role that is sort of you know the premise of this show
5: I I I have come to realize that we talk about our our method of inquiry and how we decide on projects like this is a very serious project that came out of me being like everyone calling this stuff fashion makes me angry why does it make me angry let's think a little bit more about why it makes me angry mm-hmm. <laughs> and i think that Trust that's your why feelings. yeah i think that's not why it's not the other paper but i think a lot of my papers My work on Janet Van Dyne is specifically because Chris Anka's renditions of Janet Van Dyne clothing also make me very angry. And that's something that I'm going to have to reconcile with is the fact that I feel like the way that current Marvel discourse around fashion isn't what fashion is. That's like, it kind of doesn't matter because that's what it is, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Like, it doesn't matter that it makes me angry. And so that's why that's not the paper that we're going for. What there is no sense of this is also why I'm always like historical accuracy in period movies is bullshit, because that's just not what was available when you were building the clothes at the costume house. And for me to get angry about, yeah for me to get angry about being like, that's not what fashion is. Like that's not productive because the fan discourse around it is, this is what fashion is, and this is what I want to talk about. And so that's the thing that's people's conceptions of fashion are worth much more than my conception of what fashion is as a fashion historian.
0: I don't know. I don't know that I'd say it's worth more. I think it's for instance, if you take Whiplash, which we talked about a bunch today, Steph is interested in the question of could he have really developed the ability to become an expert drummer in the time allotted to him in the course of this movie? which is not what that movie is about at all right it's just what's interesting to Stephanie <laughs> and and the same thing like I honestly I'm doing this weird thing but it's not that wasn't Moore's point to Lost Girls and I know that and it sure as hell is not the point to Omaha I mean it, it is like they're telling that story but the part that I'm focusing on is not what matters but you know the author is dead who cares what they intended like it's your paper I mean, you're sort of- a literal expert
4: make the story that that you want it to be.
5: That's the beauty of negotiated readings, right? Is that we're mm-hmm. all able to pull on all of these different parts.
4: So we've resolved nothing after uh, <laughs> like eight, eight hours of talking. I, yeah.
1: yeah. <laughs> well, I'm glad that these were my plans on Friday night so I could say I hung out with my friends. <laughs>
0: <laughs> about that. I mean, that's what the show always is. For me, it's helpful to have a, had a chance to talk it out loud. So I hope for everybody hearing,
4: else. Yeah, I, I like hearing other people's approaches as well. It's just, you know, we're all very different in the way we approach this stuff and what our interests are. And it's all, Legitimate, I, I find that fascinating. Just the glimpses into you know, why we're interested in the things we're interested in, and, and how we put it mm-hmm. together, mm-hmm.
0: and how five different people we have very different, different methodologies all nebulously connected to pop culture. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's you know movies, TV, comics for this, but like it could be other stuff. So I, I'm interested to see how all of them turn out, and I guess I get to see next week, yeah, <laughs> or,
4: or actually
1: <laughs> this week as oh, the right. place.
0: Yes, podcast time travel. I get to see in a couple of days. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> a couple of days. Yes. Well, and
4: I, I guess the other piece of this that we should make the announcement is our the panel that uh, Mav and I will be part of on Friday. Oh, yeah. We'll also be on another panel. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. One of the keynote speakers at, at PCA this year is our Spiegelman, the creator of Mouse, which has been in the news lately. And we talked about specifically on our banned Books episode. But uh, He's mm-hmm. a keynote speaker. He's speaking on uh, Thursday evening. Hmm. But on Friday evening, there's going to be a roundtable discussion, panel discussion Nav and I are both going to be participating on that panel.
0: Yeah, there's going to be a whole panel on his work on, or mm-hmm. on, on this book specifically. And for, you know, for other listeners, the two of us will be on it. And other names that you might recognize, Nicole will be there and Joe Dorowski on yeah. the show and some other people as well
4: so, so, so it's sort of like a very special episode of vox Popcast. <laughs> but i'm not sure that's a
0: very yeah the, a very special episode and protagonist and again weirdness about the way pca work no one could get, get to hear it unless you're a member of pca which is sort of which again is sort of why it's bizarre because the way these roundtables work is a lot that, like our show And it's very much where we, you know, we very intentionally in the very beginning, the, the format, we massaged it a little bit. I don't get to drink at PCA. We should fix that. (laughs)
2: now that it's
1: um, at home you can
0: that's true
1: that is technically true it is interesting actually that i feel like pca and the papers all of us have described today are the kind of things that random people are most likely to be like yeah i want to read that and i know that because i am taking time off work to do this and i mentioned what i was doing and someone was like oh i actually want to read that you send it to me And like, once they get it, they might regret it.
0: I think PCA presentations are more interesting than PCA papers for regular people because it's hearing someone talk about their work, getting the question and answer section afterwards, seeing the abridged version. So, it, you know, even of, you said you're going to read the paper. But even that said, if you write an academic paper, it's 20 pages. You're not doing that here, right? Like it's a, like you are very much by the format limited to making it highlights.
1: And I wrote it to be a ta- like I, I did write it so I'd have notes because I personally get very nervous and so (laughs) people who need accessibility copies can follow along yes I did do that but I didn't mm-hmm. like this is not something that I like had wrote written like a chapter of my dissertation and then edited it down till like, seven pages right which is something I have done when I've been mm-hmm. desperate yes but I purposely wrote this to be a talk and sure maybe I need to read a little bit of it out loud and be like do I need to make these words and sentences <laughs> not this um, <laughs> so like ideally when you're writing a talk you think about your audience and like, are these. These sentences something that a human being would say in normal conversation and so on. And like I'm never gonna be a great speaker because I get super nervous and I no matter how many times I practice, I talk a little fast, which is bad of me. But you know, like like there there is a performance element to it too. And and you know, there's you know you have to think about things like projection so people can hear you. And it's it's like a whole different thing than writing a research paper, yes, I it is nine thirty and I am tired, so you have to shut me up.
2: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: Just, I recommend for Hannah when I get better at it, just spend four or five years as a professional wrestler it really helps. It really takes <laughs> the edge off. I, I just, I absolutely say you should go.
1: <laughs> I'll work on that in my spare time. <laughs> Why anyway. well, not? I going to my old age into my 30s. I, I don't think 30 is old. I, I'm just joking.
0: Literally, when I started for exactly that reason midlife crisis. So it's like, nice. oh, I'm 30. Let me take up wrestling. <laughs> That's a thing oh. that I did. For,
5: <laughs> yeah, for the listeners, I'm turning 30 this month. So we'll see what
2: that <laughs> does to me.
5: <laughs> okay. so are you going to watch 13 going on 30 on your birthday?
1: That's oh. the appropriate <laughs>
5: Gonna be 30 and flirty and thriving. I've been waiting for this
2: moment my whole life. <laughs> <laughs>
0: anyway. Stephanie, thank you for joining us for this. Oh, nice Thanks for asking uh, me. Uh, I don't know so... if you'll come. You know, we'll probably uh, you might be around. Uh, do something little uh, something next week, so we'll see. <laughs> um, yeah. Is there anything that you'd like to plug?
3: <laughs> no, I'm good. Thank you for asking. <laughs>
0: uh, this is going to go so poorly. I hate this part. Palindrome, Hannah. What about you?
1: Come to PCA if you you know feel like it. I will be presenting on Wednesday in the comics area at two p.m. in two days. That's the- <laughs> <laughs> yes it's gonna be fine you didn't all boo me so like you know
0: <laughs> no i liked it i like what we heard I, I want to hear the rest of it monica twist.
5: my talk And Wayne's talk are on Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Or if you're on the West Coast like me, we're going to wake up early. And that (coughs) means it's 8 a.m. If you want to ask me questions, you can find me on Twitter at Monica Marvelous. That's L-O-U-X.
0: And Wayne Marvelous. (laughs) It doesn't work with you. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like, your name's actually an adjective to start with. It's like Wayne
4: White.
0: Wayne, yes. Yeah. Really
4: Wonderful? Mm. <laughs> like you I can use wonderful? No. no, but thanks for asking. I... <laughs> <laughs> I, hate, I
2: hate. Thank you,
3: Wayne. I appreciate
2: that.
4: <laughs> <laughs> you can find next it. Oh, go time, I'm going to have something next time, but I, I'm holding it off because it's a couple weeks away yet. So. Okay.
3: All right. Well, nice. <laughs> me too. Me too, by the way.
4: Okay. Yeah. You guys both
0: say Just that. And I'm going to ask you next time you don't get as much feedback as we'd really like about like our concepts and we didn't do the entire papers here but it would be really nice if people were like hey yeah I am interested in you know can you become a chess expert in like a video montage of like <laughs> you <laughs> know like because like, that's one of the things that I'm like you know really interested in stuff smart uh, talk if I you know if I want to become an, a karate expert can I just do like a little bit of wax on wax off and now I'm that's and awesome
4: I think, <laughs> and I and since you say that I think this heightless can- options of becoming a wrestling star by the time. Oh,
2: absolutely. There you
0: go. <laughs> by yeah. next week. Sure.
4: <laughs> you do a montage between now and next week, you're good. Yeah,
0: there you go. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook. All the places. Always at Chris Maverick. You can follow the show. All those same places. At Fox Podcast. You can follow the show's blog at www.voxpopcast.com where you find out what we're talking about next week. It's PCA. <laughs> wow. okay. um, and you can comment on this and any other show. Give us your thoughts. Tell us your thoughts on this show especially. Please, in the, yeah, in all seriousness, leave us comments on this episode because I want to know, you know, what people think about the ideas. Cause the, you know, the bad part about academic conferences is because they're small, um, you don't get as much feedback as we'd really like about like our concepts. And we didn't do the entire papers here, but it would be really nice if people were like, Hey, yeah, I am interested in, you know, can you become a chess expert in like a video montage? Please. Let us know your thoughts on this or any topic. And if you enjoy the show, and we certainly hope you do, please subscribe to us on iTunes or Stitcher or Spotify or wherever the hell else you get podcasts from. And do us a favor, leave us a five-star review. If you leave us a five-star review, especially on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, that gooses the algorithm, makes us more popular, really helps us out and, you know, makes us feel good. Like, it really is. It's really nice. to. We haven't gotten any new reviews in a bit. And it's really nice to read, you know, Five star reviews, always five stars, and lets us know it is. So please do that. I would like to thank Stephanie for joining us once again. Thanks, Steph. Thanks, Steph. I would like to thank Maximilian of Thoughtform Music for our epic theme song, building ever so more epically and playing us out. I'd like to thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.
4: Bye. 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 Bye.